Well, hello again. Uh, I'm uh, Pastor Mike Manea, and I'm, uh, uh, as I've shared in previous episodes, I'm working on a Doctor of Ministry project. And I've uh, put together a document uh, that I've asked uh, a number of people to kind of read through and critique. And today I'm here with uh, Dr. Joshua Swamiras. I was going to ask you how to pronounce the name properly. Hopefully you correct me on that. Um, and he's going to give me a little bit of feedback uh, as to the paper and whatever other things he wants to share. Um, for anyone that wants to read the document that we're talking about, it's at bit.ly, uh, bit.ly dash Sola Scriptura Manifesto. Uh, so with that, I'm going to uh, go ahead and let Josh introduce himself and we'll go from there. Yeah, my name is Josh Samidas. I'm a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm a scientist. I'm also a Christian and I'm the author of The Genealogical Adam and Eve and the founder of Peaceful Science. Yeah, and for anybody that's interesting, that's a great book. I highly recommend it. Um, I, I think I sat down and read the whole thing in one setting in, in a matter of hours. I couldn't put it down. So, yeah, definitely well, an awesome book. Um, okay, so I know you have some thoughts on the on the material, and I know some of the things you disagree with, which is great, because a lot of the people I've talked to so far were kind of more on the positive side of it, and I want to hear the other side of the story. So, by all means, just jump in and uh, kind of tell me what, what you know, I think there's a lot of good things about what you're doing I mean I think that you're <laughs> I think you're right that epistemology has to be part of the conversation uh, when we start to work out what our differences are and I think what you're trying to do which I think is really right is you're not satisfied with the way how we're working through our differences right now in the church yeah. and you're trying to find some better ways to do so is that a good way to put it? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I think that's an important conversation. So basically, even if somebody disagrees with most of the stuff in my paper, at least they should agree that we need to come come up with better. So we need strategy. a better way than what's going on right now. Yeah. The way we're doing it right now is, is not working. Exactly, right? exactly. So I agree with you there. And I think that's the right place to put focus. And I think, you know, doing this from a demon, you're, you're doing this certainly with academic components, but it really does seem to be oriented towards a pastoral eye. Like you're, yeah. you're thinking through... What does this look like in the church? What does this look like in congregations? Yeah. And, and I think that also is really critical, um, you know, and there's got to be some sort of connection between what experts who understand theology and historical theology and all this stuff are thinking about and working through and how it's actually handled in congregations. And not all congregations are well connected to that. It's another place where I think there's something really strong and important there. I think yeah, I, I think we've gotten to a stage in, in uh, academia where we're too specialized, you know, kind of like if you went to a doctor and you went to a cardiologist, then you went to endocrinologist or whatever, and they all focused on their thing, but nobody sat back and looked at the big picture. Yeah, I wouldn't say the problem is specialization. I'd say the problem is disconnection. Yeah. So uh, having deep knowledge in a narrow thing is not a problem. I think the problem is when that deep specialized knowledge um, just gets locked away. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and it's not connected. So I don't think the problem is specialization. I think the problem is really disconnection. Yeah. Um, and... And, you know, a large part of it is often because that academic work isn't really connected back to practice of what goes on in congregations. I think that's the project that you're about here. I think that's that's a good project. Yeah. Um, I think also you really identified epistemology as a really critical thing. I think that's true. I think epistemology needs to be part of the conversation. You've also talked about um, our notions of sola scriptura and inerrancy as being part of it. I think that also is supposed to be part of the conversation. I would say a big part of why it's difficult is how uh, is how really the term inerrancy or sola scriptura has become litmus test in a way in, in a populist sense in the church, in a way it's actually disconnected what people even originally meant by it in the first place. And yeah. 
Um, and I, I don't actually think there's any problem with inerrancy. I mean, I, I'm an inerrantist myself. I think there is a problem, though, with a an untutored or un, uh, or a naive view of inerrancy mm -hmm. that even the biggest proponents of inerrancy have cautioned against. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, that's that's all that's all good there. So I think in that sense, I think you're really on the right track. Now I do disagree. I would say pretty substantially with some of the paths you take. Okay. All right. So do you have uh, a sequence you want to go through? I mean, whatever you think is the most important thing, just jump in and kind of. So um, what you did is you started by kind of. I mean, I just kind of located like you identified the problem correctly. I think, and I think you identified. Um, key components of the conversation correctly. I think that's completely true. There's probably more. I mean, you also identify science as a critical piece of this too. And obviously yeah. that's important as well because a lot of these conflicts really are rising around science. But then what I'd say is that you take an archetypal approach to organizing conversation. Okay. Um, and that archetypal approach is fundamentally self-defeating. Mm -hmm. It's not the right approach. Okay, so um, I want to understand a little better. I want to explain to you what I mean by archetypal. Yeah. Is that you basically start to define archetypes that bundle together several different things. Okay. So you have like the archetype of the young earth creationist and the things that that young earth creationist cares about. And you then, you know, proceed to simplify all of young earth creationism down to the young earth creationist archetype you define. Mm -hmm. You have like the old earth creationist. And once again, you have a certain characteristics there. You simplify everything down of the old earth creationist to that archetype. And then now you have a conversation between these archetypes and you, you arrange them, uh, for example, on how, uh, how much they value scripture, which might be true of your archetypes. But here's the problem, um, is that is not true uniformly about people across those camps. There's, uh, there's far more diversity there. And I think the problem is when we think, for example, our, our value on scripture is connected to those archetypes in a strong way because I, I don't actually think that that's true now i think some people want us to think that okay and that's why it becomes actually um it kind of plays into a deep misinformation about what's really going on i think an archetypal approach is not the right way to approach it um, a good way to think about it is if you can imagine like a you know we've all used powerpoint where we're trying to arrange uh you know images on a on a on a screen right and then how you just want it to go here, but it keeps on snapping into the wrong place. Yeah. And, and you're saying, but no, I'm trying to go here. And it just snaps you back. Yeah. That's what archetypes do. They psychologically say, oh, you kind of fit that pattern. So you must also think th this, this, and this. You're like, but no, 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 I don't think that. But no, 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 no. You're in the archetype and you snap people that way. And what it ends up doing is actually really inhibiting real progress and real understanding um, it, by effectively silencing, frankly, a lot of voices. And I think that's why it's actually quite destructive to use that model in a particularly in a congregational context, because what it does is actually silence people um, in a way that that isn't helpful. There's a better way to approach that what you're trying to do with that. Well, you know, it's funny that you're saying this because I can totally relate to what you're saying in your in your field of things like for example every time i get into an evolution discussion people always put me in a box and i don't want to be in that box because i don't agree with pretty much all the camps that i'm familiar with but well, i always that most people have major disagreements with the camp that they are most associated with yeah um maybe so, not all but most um and it's most common uh, you would say kind of like as you get farther away from the current leaders but the problem is that the current leaders 
have not actually given us a good way out of this mess. We don't yeah. want to really fixate on what Ken Ham is thinking. Oh yeah, yeah. and what uh, you know, what uh, you can go down the list of all those groups. You don't want to fixate on that, and um, you know that kind of gets into more of a political framing where it's like you know who's on my side, yeah, and, you know yeah. are they beating who's on your yeah. side? I, I think I think that's just not helpful. I think it's much better to understand not uh, is to basically discard that archetypal approach. Mm. And, and focus instead um, in something that can actually bring out more diversity. So I can give you some different um, approaches that can give more organization without having the same problem of, of, of like a of an archetypal or a click-in or a false bundling approach that you're taking. Okay, okay. So let, let me see what... Uh, because really, I think almost in all, all human knowledge, we progress by organizing. So for example, in biology... We have the, the genuses, the, the species, all these things organized, and there's always anomalies. I mean, you have some criteria. And, yeah, and the anomalies are the exciting thing. That's yeah. the, where we'd see a new way arise, right? Yeah, but, but, but we organize them to make sense of the anomaly. So we, we, I mean, if we just discarded all our organizational structure, then we'd be stuck. We'll be back at the beginning. Well, so I'm not saying discard uh, all of our organizational structure. I'm saying discard an archetypal organizational structure. Okay, so that so, is a mess. So give me an example of how you would you would do, sort things a little bit differently. So the problem is the, the the problem with archetypes is that it ends up bundling ideas that are not necessarily linked. Okay, and uh, that's the problem. That's the fundamental problem, and, and it basically locks us into that frame. A better way to do it is to consider different dimensions in isolation. And then see how people, you know, fall on those things. So, for example, one uh, dimension you can have is, you know, what is your view of Sola Scriptura? And not link it strongly to any of the archetypes, just explaining the different ways to understand it. And, and to have some complexity there. So, um, one mistake, I think it's actually a fairly large mistake you make, is actually granting far too much legitimacy to people who take a non-traditional view of Sola Scriptura. That's actually a great deviation from the people who actually proposed it. It's what I would call is like naive view. Uh, and, what I call the fundamentalist view. Yeah, I would call it a naive view. Yeah. It's, and it's not actually rooted in tradition. It's just basically, um, you know, if you go talk to someone on the street who has no awareness of this and is just picking something that rhetorically sounds like they care about Scripture a lot. Yeah, yeah. That's... You know that that that's not really um, a real position per se, yeah. um, and to to put that as like the one that cares about scripture the most is bizarre. The ones who are going to care about scripture the most are the ones who are going to know how to value scripture really carefully and are informed about scripture, right? Um, yeah, so I, I would I would actually really reframe them and make it really clearly there, and then we can ask questions. Then, for example, and I think there's a lot of things that are bound up in the sola scripture idea. There's sola scripture. There's also an errancy. Um, there's very little discussion, if any, about the Chicago Statements, which I think is a really important place to look. Also, the Lausanne Covenant is another place to look, where it talks about inerrancy. Mm -hmm. And um, and so those, those starting points are really critical, because if you're going to talk about inerrancy, but you don't know, what to, if you've never read the Chicago Statements, then you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and, and there's certain things that are said there that really have to be explored and, and explained, especially in a congregational context, so people even know what inerrancy is. You don't have to agree with the Chicago statements, yeah. but if you're going to reject it or hold to it, you should at least read those, yeah. if you get what I'm saying. You, should, you know what they're saying. And so I think uh, kind of starting to explain it in terms of like Chicago statements inerrancy or, you know, Lausanne covenant inerrancy or uh, and kind of explaining what that is. And explaining uh, how people will affirm it and how people affirm it with dissent. 
mm-hmm. I think is really critical. And so instead of like this single dimensional sort of string, we're more talking about really organizing different ways how people really thought about what inerrancy is. Yeah. Another another thing really related to this is, that is some, what sometimes people will call a high view of scripture. Say, say that last part again. Some, it's related to what you're saying. Sometimes something what sometimes people will call a high view of scripture. High view of scripture, yes. Okay. You can also think about organizing questions too. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if scripture you came to be in uh, came to believe was in conflict with what science said, what would you trust more, science or scripture? Yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of people, they really want to know. I mean, for me, I want to know that the answer is I would trust scripture more, and that's what I what I would say. Yeah. Um, and that would be an example of how you might understand, like, a, you know, putting a magisterial view of scripture or a high view of scripture. Um, and it has to do with not just inerrancy, it also has to do with loyalties and where we place, place our loyalties. So you can imagine having a much more detailed, um, comprehensive view of explaining what sola scripture is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you could also do the same thing on origins, uh, looking at things like where do you think humans came from? You know, how old is the universe, right? Mm-hmm. But what I would really resist is any tight linking between anything on the solo scripture side and that. Now, what you could say is that most evolutionary creationists do not hold to inerrancy. Yeah. That would be a true statement. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Most people that, that have understood Christians that, uh, that affirm evolution to really hold to that. But it's really important to recognize that that's not actually an intrinsically strong linking. It's not like one leads to the other. And so are there any questions that hold to a high view of scripture or a high view of inerrancy that also affirm evolution? Mm-hmm. So that would be a way then to start exploring and organizing the space in a different sort of way. And you know what you'll find when you start breaking it down that way, I think you'll find out that there's a lot of people that will say, well, yeah, I guess my issue is not really with evolution. Because if there's people out there that affirm evolution, but with a high view of scripture, I don't have a problem with them. Yeah. My problem is really with those ones over there that are doing that, but it's not because of evolution. It's really because they're doing this. Yeah, yeah. And so that gives a better way to organize now that's clear. And you can also start asking questions of like, well, you know, um, what if there was a way to do this, to, to believe X while also believing Y? Mm-hmm. Would that be a good thing? Yeah. Even if there isn't a lot of people there, could that be a better way forward? So I think that that gives us a better rubric, a better framing to start thinking about these issues. And we just talked about a couple d- dimensions, but you can imagine several dimensions here. Yeah. You can also talk about science uh, and kind of thinking about how we, how we think through that and several others. I think also, too, what's really critical to understand through this is the exceptions to the archetypes. Let me talk about young earth creationism for a moment. You know, Ken Ham is one archetype, right? Yeah. He kind of really is where everything kind of clicks to when it comes to young earth creationism just because of his prominence. But, um, but he actually is out of step with where most young earth creationists are. Most young earth creationists are very uncomfortable when they see him do it about how he talks about Jesus. Mm-hmm. They, most of them aren't. They, they don't like how he talks about other Christians for the most part. They, they, they might be young earth creationists too and agreeing with him on the age of the earth. But they would disagree, for example, with how he's really reached, he talked, about, um, talked about Bill Craig. Yeah, and and called them a compromiser and all of that. They'd say, well, no, he's he, Bill Craig was wrong, but he's done a lot of good for the faith, and they would have a very different attitude about that. Um, and you know, uh, many young Earth Christians that I've talked to have told me that you know, if my kids—I mean, I'm a young Earth Christian, so I disagree with you—but if my kids ended up like you and held Scripture and Jesus the way you do, as they affirmed evolution, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah. And so, um, 
And they wouldn't have said that to many other Christians that are from evolution. Mm-hmm. But they said it to me. Why is that? Because the real dimensions that matter aren't actually the details of what you believe in the past. And you don't want to link those things tightly. Yeah. And so uh, so what happens is actually, you know, um, the archetypal approach really creates a problem rather than more kind of handling all these things in more isolation and then seeing how it all fits together. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. Well, l- let me take just like two minutes to, to try to explain what I was trying to do a little bit better. And if it doesn't make sense, then we'll, we'll move on to something else. Because you're actually like the fourth or fifth person that picked on that one element in my paper and, and, and saw the problems with it. Uh, so I need to go back and find a better way to do it. But I think I'm going to wait till I get a little bit more feedback before I go back and rewrite the paper. Uh, what I'm talking about is the chart where I talk about degrees of inspiration. Then, and I put I put the fundamentalists all the way. I to think like, that that is a disaster. Yeah. It's so a lot of a lot of people have problems with that. The thing is, I need to figure out a way how to say what I'm trying to say that makes more sense. And I haven't figured it out yet. But what I'm talking about is what do in, the individual groups claim to do, not what they're actually doing. I don't think that that's that's actually important. It's not about the groups. I think that's a well, mistake. It, it's important for what I'm trying to to get across to but uh, regardless okay so essentially um i'm looking at the whole of their theology and their whole of the philosophy so if you know if you take christians coming from different angles and you look at their whole way of thinking their entire worldview uh they position scripture in different ways so yeah, like I, if you talk- I guess i just disagree with that entire premise i don't think that's a helpful way of, of thinking about it um i just don't think it's true I don't. I don't think that's how what's, what's happening. I mean, I understand. I think I understand what you're trying to say. But, look, I mean, I think a better way to do it is I would make a two-dimensional graph. On one side, you have, you know, the position you are in origins. Another other thing is, you know, you can't really produce a clean ordering in all of those. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I would probably throw in some other things like young biosphere creation, which are you know Seventh Day Adventists that actually think the Earth is old but life is young. Throw in some of the surprising things there, and that that's one dimension. And then you have another dimension which is. Um, you know, different positions on inerrancy, like Chicago statements, Lausanne covenant, and you can kind of think through that, right? Yeah. Um, and and then ask, okay, so in that quadrant, where do individuals fall? So where does Ken Ham fall? Where does, you know, uh, where do organizations that have belief statements you could have too? So like, where does AIG fall? Where does reasons to believe fall? Where does uh, biologos fall and where are some of the outliers people who are like where does josh swamidas fall where does ken ham fall uh where does um uh you know where does john walton fall where does all these it, those it, sorts it, of people fall you see is, the diversity is there. kent hoven still alive or is he i'm not i know he's alive is he still around in the debate or is he kind of off of the well you know there's a difference between rhetorics i mean like a huge part of young earth creationism is a rhetoric around yeah um around inerrancy that is actually deeply disconnected from tradition and that's great that's what it is but that doesn't mean it's actually inerrancy um so 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 here's the thing josh the thing is my paper isn't revolving around the debate about evolution like that wasn't my i'm just you had the thing on origins right where you actually had like where people sit on inerrancy and you said that if you're an old earth creationist then this is where you sit with inerrancy if this is where um uh, or solo uh, scripture. So, anyway. so I'm I'm speaking about the entire theology, not just the origins issue. Like that's just maybe one element out of a hundred or a thousand different yeah, but, doctrinal but, elements. But we don't have unified theological points of view on this. Like you know, um, I mean, 
like old earth creationists are incredibly diverse they have very diverse views young earth creationists are very diverse yeah uh, evolutionary i mean like everyone's very diverse i don't i don't think I, don't, I think you're um it's more like a stereotype than a clear explanation of reality um the thing is i never said that any one of these groups is young earth creationist or old earth creationist i mean there might be fundamentalists that fall on the old earth creationist side there might be catholics that fall on the younger creationists so i never made that connection when you talk about fundamentalist protestants and but even then i mean like it was it like evangel i mean you can go back and look at that there was one there was one very early figure you're right it didn't have it didn't have where you were on origins but it had those traditions but even with those traditions they're very diverse yeah they are but but the, the key is this when um when protestants were working through their epistemology because the, the Protestant Reformation happened in a setting where people believe that the church is the only one capable of coming up to the correct interpretation of scripture. And if they had accepted that premise, the, pro the Reformation would have fallen apart. So they had to find a way to, to establish a different center for theology. And they came up with the Sola Scriptura concept, but it was a very qualified Sola Scriptura because different people we're reading the Bible and coming up to with totally different conclusions. And at some point they say, man, we got to put some, some reins on this or otherwise it's just going to end up in chaos. And they argue that the way to rein in scriptural interpretation is to go by the, the early church fathers to, to go by the regular fide. They, they, the, the expression was, you know, the, the early tradition of the church. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I think history is important, but I think there's a far more proximate or recent history that's important, which is the fundamentalist modernist split. Yeah. So that's about, so, you know, the Reformation is, you know, about 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the fundamentalist modernist split is maybe about 150 years ago. Yeah. And, and that's still with us. Um, and so I think, and, you know, all the denominations that formed during the Reformation all went through a fundamentalist modernist split into two different branches. They'll be like yeah. kind of like, like the liberal branch and then the conservative branch right and uh the liberals were the the modernists and the and the and the conservatives were the were the uh the fundamentalists mm -hmm. but then um you know maybe over the last 50 years or so there's been like a there's been like an attempt to really build a synthesis about that in kind of more modern day evangelicalism right yeah 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 and, and there's a lot of crossover this day so so it's a little bit more confusing as to deciding who who sides with what where and um you can't just have you know liberals versus conservatives that's not a good class yeah, but you know so ken ham is solidly in a, a fundamentalist not an evangelical yeah yeah exactly um and uh, there's a lot of christians out there that are solidly modernist they're not really evangelical either <laughs> but there's a large number of people who i mean i'd say probably the bulk of um you know the professing church right now mm. is in that evangelical place right yeah. of, of trying to sort out some sort of synthesis between the two of them um and yeah science is kind of caught up in this and you know scripture is caught up in this those are actually the two central things because like the fundamentalists took scripture and the modernists took science with them when they split right yeah, yeah. and so i mean i think that's a far more helpful framework um and so that also highlights why it really is a little bit kind of difficult to say, you know, we're modernists 
I'm sorry, where um, Protestants fit, because it really depends what type of Protestant you're talking about. Yeah. And not even like Lutheran versus Methodist, but which type of Lutheran <laughs> and which type of Methodist? Mm -hmm. um, you know, which end of that split were you in the Methodist church? Which end of that split were you in the, in the, in the Lutheran church? Um, and, and how did you navigate that? How did your church navigate that? So, I mean, I, I, I think that there's, um, I think there's a, I, I mean, I, I just think that a lot of the categories you're using, I mean, I don't think that they really make as much sense. I'm like, I get what you're trying to do. I just think that it needs to be broken down in a very different way. And I do think the the reformer history is interesting, but the but the history of, of, of the fundamentalists and the modernists, and then you know, I mean, I think the Luzon Covenant is actually very critical for entangling a lot of this too. Say that again. I, I missed the last the part. Luzon Covenant is very critical for entangling a lot of this too. Uh, okay, so I, I don't quite I couldn't quite make that word. What covenant? Luzon Covenant. Tell me a little bit about that, because I actually haven't heard that expression before. So, you know, like in the 60s, like, you know, I think the modernist fundamentalist split was very, very strong. Right. And then yeah. in the 70s, there was like the Jesus movement. It was like kind mm -hmm. of tail end of the 60s in, in there. And you have like the, you had kind of a resurgence of the missionary uh, movement. And um, and really kind of in that you had all these denominations that didn't usually talk to each other, kind of bumping against each other in the mission field. And there was also kind of like the whole 1040 window and like the whole, you know, you know, every tribe movement. That was like a very big deal during that time. Yeah. And so basically uh, Billy Graham and John Stott uh, called an international meeting that had several thousand people show up from across the world. I mean, it was like over 150 nations that were really there and just about every denomination you can imagine. And they it came up with a charter or covenant to really define what is the gospel? What are we doing? What is the church? How does it all fit together? How do we work together in a way that isn't just a... A bunch of people like fighting with each other yeah and that's really considered one of the foundational documents in modern uh, evangelicalism i mean mm -hmm. catholic signed it orthodox people signed it it's really everyone around there and it really kind of put an emphasis on who jesus is and core historical doctrines about in our faith and also it made um, some very carefully negotiated statements on inerrancy and the point is, is that, you know, if you can affirm this and not everyone could, I mean, like Mormons can't affirm the Lausanne covenant. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but if you could affirm that um, there's agreement very broadly in the church in a way that's, um, you know, uh, that hasn't really happened since then on any other topic. Like, well, you know, that is actually Orthodox Christianity. That's what it means to be, you know, evangelical Christian. Right. Now, some of the language in it is a little bit dated. I mean, it's from the 70s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but when you get to the actual content it, and you think about the fact that this involved Christians and was formed in a process of the Christians across the entire world, not just a bunch of, uh, you know, a, a small group of, you know, <laughs> you know, white Christians in a corner mm -hmm. uh, here or there uh, telling everyone else what to do. And you realize that it was negotiated and that, um, and that the, the, the position papers and the books written about it were very well thought through. Um, and also, you know, they had moral authority to really say this. And that actually really changed the face of evangelicalism in, in, in really critical ways. And so, um, so, you know, a big part, I think, of starting to work through these issues is actually, you know, kind of reminding people of some of this history. Um, so, for example, um, the way how Lausanne Covenant talks about inerrancy is it says that the Bible is without errors and all that it affirms, and it's the only infallible guide to uh to practice yeah that's what it says so even even catholics agreed to that right mm -hmm. 
and in that way, um, you know, you know, evangelicalism, as defined in the Lausanne Covenant, is bigger than Catholicism. Yeah, uh, it, it's bigger than than any single denomination because it's really all the denominations that are Orthodox really speaking together. Um, that seems to be a pretty critical um, piece of the puzzle that really needs to be talked about now. Some people didn't think the Lausanne Covenant was enough. That's even part of the motivation for the, the Chicago Statements on Inerrancy. Mm -hmm. But even then, when, when you look at what it says there, it, it, like the, you know, the statements are very clear that inerrancy does not lock you into a young earth. It's very clear that when it talks about evolution, it only means a godless process. And so if you, you're talking about evolution as something like other than a godless process, then it's not what they care about. Yeah. Okay. It's also really clear that scripture doesn't speak with, um, with scientific precision, and that's a mistake. That's because they were looking at the whole picture. They didn't want people to come back and say, well, Jesus says that the smallest of seeds was a mustard seed. And we know that orchids have smaller seeds. Therefore, Jesus was not divine yeah. and the bible is errant they didn't want people to play that silly game mm -hmm. because that was abusing the text for what it really meant so they really talked a lot about you know about these details right and so um the problem isn't really inerrancy it really is is more kind of like an untutored naive merely rhetorical approach to inerrancy which kind of beats your chest and says you're the one who takes scripture the most seriously that's the problem uh, I'm curious, what is the general acceptance of this uh, as far as the wider community? I mean, I'm sure the fundamentalists probably don't agree with that, or at least... Well, actually, the way how it works in evangelicalism is that we're generally ignorant people when it comes to our traditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but, um, but at the same token, we're also fairly orthodox. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're ignorant of the story out of which our beliefs come. But we're also not heretical for the most part, if that makes any sense. So what uh, usually happens is people have no, normally never heard about it. But you show it to them and they're like, oh, yeah, I can agree and affirm to all of this. And then if you also look at how um, belief statements are supposed to work is that they're not actually supposed to be entirely normative. I mean, it's just a human document in the end. You can say, you know, I agree with everything in the Luzon Covenant, except for with this exception. This is the one place I dissent, and this is the reason why. And disclose that and explain why. And with that, it's be very hard to find anyone who identifies as evangelical who wouldn't be able to affirm it without one or two um, what we would probably consider fairly minor, um, you know, minor uh, uh, reservations. One friend of mine, Erica Carlson, she's a physicist at Purdue. Uh, when she was asked to affirm it, she read it carefully and said, you know, I can't affirm it because it says that the gospel is for all men. Uh, okay. But I think it's also for women and children, too. And the organization that really wanted her to affirm it said, oh, OK, sure. That, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem with that. So that's an example of kind of dissenting from it. Right. In a way that isn't really ultimately a problem. And frankly, she probably has a point. Yeah. You know, if we were to redo it, you know, maybe we'd actually adopt better language there. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you know, it might be an interesting thing to propose having a, a, re, a revised meeting or. So they have done follow up meetings. So there's a Lausanne organization. And so they've had the Manila Manifesto and a couple others. And none of them have had, I think, quite the same impact as the Lausanne uh, Covenant. And, you know, I think that that's fine. I mean, frankly, you know, that was something really special that happened. You know, we don't, we're not like revising the Nicene Creed. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think, uh, I think that that's okay that we haven't. Um, I mean, 
part of it is that you know there's denominational meetings and usually those large starts sorts of statements arise because of actual social pressure that's creating a real question that everyone has to to address and really what it was is that's really at the peak of the fundamentalist modernist design mm -hmm. um, they couldn't really use standard categories like the ones you're using to say who was actually really aligned with them or not because they couldn't say the methodists are with us because some methodists were out there in, in this place that was denying the gospel and some of them were so they were trying to figure out how do we navigate that and so that's really how it was solved and so um I think it's really a problem to try and reinvent the wheel on those things without engaging them. I think that that's that, that's the mistake of, of evangelicalism that we do. We try and take this really big problem that we're trying to negotiate and ignore all of the history and effort that's gone into it to resolve it, all the institutional investment that's gone into these things, and then just try and do it all from scratch. That, that that's not that's not sensible. Yeah. I mean, we're part of a larger story. We, we can't dis divorce ourselves from that. Even if we forget it, it's still there. And I think that um, there's a lot to be gained by um, recovering the, that far more recent history. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I need to definitely look into this a little more. I, I'm sure I, come, I came across it somewhere in my, in my studies, but for some reason it never like, got my attention. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with the Chicago statement and all that. Um, and I've definitely heard about, uh, you know, ecumenical statement, but then there's also all of the exposition of it. So yeah. Stott wrote a really good exposition of it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things too that they had to do, which is different from fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is really about a monochromatic view of the church. Like there's one right way, and then if you're not aligned with us, you're really against us. That's the way fundamentalism yeah. is, right? Um, I mean, you can see it in Ken Ham. But to be clear, not all young earth creationists are fundamentalists. <laughs> Sure, sure. But you can see it in Ken Ham. Um, one of the, the, the challenges you have to work through if you're an evangelical who believes that the church is broader is you have to figure out why is it that there's so much disagreement in the church? You have to have a good theological account of disagreement. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the, if the scripture is important and we can all read it, and we, how is it that we all come to disagree on important things based on scripture? How, how, how do we make sense of that reality? Now, a fundamentalist doesn't have that problem. Because they look at it and say, well, because all of them aren't real Christians. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the easiest uh, cop-out or, you know, like... Well, you know, the modernists don't have the problem either because they just say, well, Scripture isn't really that important. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And so, you know, but the, but the evangelicals in a different spot because they're kind of facing, you know, the uncomfortable reality of diversity in the church. Um, amongst a lot of people who seem to be a good faith and really caring about scripture. And so Stott actually dealt with this and he picked out Ephesians 3.10. And where it's talking actually about the gospel, if you look at the context, the context actually makes it a lot more clear that this is a good interpretation. And he takes a literal interpretation of that, which says um, that where it talks about how the many colored wisdom of the church will be revealed. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, sorry, the many colored wisdom of God will be revealed in the church is what it says. Yeah. And he argues that, you know, and so this is actually what ends up being part of the Lasan Covenant, too. It talks about the many-colored wisdom of God. And, I mean, I talked about it in my book, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> I talked about how many-colored wisdom might arise. And the whole point is that he's he's looking there at Ephesians 3.10, and he's seeing, oh, it's talking about there being multiple colors to God's wisdom. And so that probably applies here when we talk about Scripture. Maybe that there's legitimacy across all these divides. Not that everyone's right. 
but there might everyone might have a hold of some sort of legitimacy here that there's that we can actually do this better together than we could ever apart and so it really is a strong theological case for diversity and i think that that that's part of once again i think the evangelical uh story is important i mean i think that 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 i would argue has really been borne out um and once again it's a very strong argument against a um, archetypal approach it, because archetypical approach doesn't really allow for that um, because it's kind of clicking everyone into a particular frame that may or may not be a good fit and saying that that's the right way to look at reality where I don't actually think that that's true. I think the right way to look at reality is very different. Um, I think it's looking at it through the lens of, um, you know, better frames of reference, you know, actually what, like, I mean, I, I mean, you, you can pick out a whole bunch of them. You can talk about, um, inerrancy is one way to look at it. That's one tradition in the church. And where do people sit on that? I think the more recent history of the fundamentalist modernist divide and how it gave rise to modern evangelicalism is another really helpful frame for helping understand people to help people understand where they sit in the story now. Yeah. That's far more important than the Luther versus um, Catholic divide. That divide has ended up, I think, kind of going into by the wayside. No one really cares about that anymore because people are going to work with a Catholic. And Lutherans will work with Catholics if they're on the right side of the Lausanne Covenant together. Yeah. And so that, that that's actually, from a praxis point of view, far more important um, than... Yeah, the, the history is there for us to just understand why things happen a certain way. They could have turned out a whole different direction if things had taken a different turn, you know, 500 or 1,000 years ago. I mean, you know, 1,000 years ago, the Catholic and Orthodox Church divide happened, and there's consequences of that that still affect us today. Anyway, I, we're coming kind of up on, you know, almost an hour now, and I did want to spend a little bit of time on the science side of things. Sure. Uh, is there, okay, can we switch to that? Sure. All right. So... <clears throat> Um, I don't know if you have any comment on any of any of the thing I said in the last section of the paper, uh, but I did have some questions for you. So I don't sure. know if you want to start with Go your ahead, ask your questions. Just ask my questions. Okay. So um, one of the the things that I've kind of been frustrated with in the realm of the philosophy of science is that I'm not aware of any clear statement of how we understand the connection between. Uh, the supernatural and God and, and all those elements that we believe as, as Christians and the methodology of science itself that basically just tends to look at the world as a, uh, a sort of cause and effect natural reaction, you know, so if somebody gets sick in Africa, they might say, oh, you know, you have an evil spirit or, you know, some something is punishing you, but we never think about those things, you know, us Westerners. We just say, oh, you feel sick, go to the doctor, and there's probably a cause for it that's a physical, material, natural cause that explains your sickness. And, and that kind of a mindset we apply in everywhere in science, and I've never really come across anybody explaining at what point do we acknowledge the supernatural and its its connection with the methodology of science? So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I know you've you wrote a, an article on, on metho methodological naturalism, which I thought was really good, but I still didn't feel like it went too far into the areas that I'm concerned with. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that it is actually well understood as part of the fundamentalist modernist split. So the modernists kind of went down this path of denying all miracles. Okay. Um, and, and many of them, um, perhaps most of them, even denied the resurrection because yeah. that's just the path they went. And I mean, they took a hold of science, which they thought had shown that there were no miracles. 
and there was just a natural and they went down that path. And then you have the fundamentalists that um, it's not fair to say they abandoned science. Um, they abandoned mainstream science and kind of created their own little version of it. Um, yeah, which I personally think it's it's not useful. And I think the whole attempt needs to be redone. I don't know what your thoughts on it, but to me, like fundamentalist science is not really. Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of creation science, but but regardless, I mean, these are the two the two approaches, right? So, but basically, for a long time, people just thought mainstream science disproves miracles and it does that, but but there's really nothing there there. Um, science doesn't actually engage those questions. So if you never ask the question, you're never going to get, you know, the answer. Um, it doesn't really seek to prove or disprove God. It doesn't really seek to prove or disprove miracles. Uh, but so it, it's silent about those things. So, you know, um, what we do know is that thinking about, for example, diseases through germ theory, that lens is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And it, this, so we know that there's some legitimacy to it, and you can't just ignore that. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean it's the whole story. So um, what I can say is it's the tractable story that we can make sense of through science. But science doesn't really ever give us the whole story. So if you realize that, then you realize that it doesn't, hasn't ruled out God's involvement and role in different things. And, and, you know, there's a question of how it is. And ultimately, we don't really know unless God tells us. And he didn't give us a lot of those details. Yeah. But, you know, we... Yeah, so, so I, I personally, you know, I'm not concerned with science ruling out miracles. As far as that's that part of it, like, I'm okay with that side. And, and, and I'm not worried that I'm going to rule out miracles if I accept science. But my question is more <clears throat> in terms of, like, the methodology itself. And it, it just seems like the methodology has has no stopping point like there's a certain way of reasoning and the only place that this reasoning will take you if you follow it all the way to its logical conclusion is a universe that is entirely mechanistic from beginning to end well its logical conclusion is incoherent to be clear so i think the issue is not actually with the methodology it's with any sense that this is the complete way of seeing the world if you think science is a complete way of seeing the world it gives total explanations. Yeah, there's a lot of problems. But if you recognize from the outset that it's not a total view of the world and it never was meant to be a total view of the world, it does some things well and it does some things extremely poorly. And so it's not really about adopting a science-only worldview. That's absurd. Mm. It's really about how do we hold science alongside other things? That's the real question. I think a lot of these problems really go away. So science just doesn't tell us the whole story. And you, you, Okay, you, so let me... Let me let me ask you a specific example. So, you know, you're, <clears throat> I don't know if you can call yourself an evolutionary biologist or not. I'm not sure what your proper well, title is. A person that affirms evolution. Okay. <clears throat> but the evolution only, only starts once we already have life. But as far as the abiogenesis aspect of it, that, that is considered a, a whole different field. But at least that element, at this point, we still don't have answers to it. So, you know, there's tons of people, tons of scientists. But even in evolution, are, we don't have all the answers. Yeah, exactly. We exactly. Have answers, but all the but answers at least that part, you know, th there's a lot of stuff that has been worked out. But as far as abiogenesis is concerned, there's a lot of scientists working on it, but they haven't really figured out a way to explain that part. Now, I asked the question, okay, well, isn't there the possibility that that's one element that God just did himself? Like, Sure. Yeah. But the thing is, scientists are still going to keep digging in to find a way to, to explain it 
mechanistic. Yeah, so what? So, so what? what is the answer to that? Just let them keep working. They're never going to. Yeah, why not? Okay. I mean, why not say, hey, maybe God did it? And even if they come up with an explanation, that may not be how it happened. Maybe God still did it. Yeah. But what's the problem with them just going and investigating it? I don't, I don't understand. No, I don't think there's a problem with them investigating, but it just seems that um, when we, we haven't come up with a, a philosophy of how to relate to, to the scientific process and when to say, well, in this situation, we know for sure this is the case. In this situation, scientists have an answer, but we don't know for sure this is the right answer. And how to navigate those things? Like I don't, I've never well, I said. Mean, in, scientists will tell you right now that we don't have the right answer. We don't know how the first. Oh, so. that that part, that part we don't. But you know, other things, we have some answers. But how com how confident we are that we have the correct answers? Like, I guess there isn't like a class where you could sit down and somebody teaches you. Okay, this is how you navigate. So I don't think the problem is with science. What I'd say is the issue is is that we've been really struggling as a church and how to engage with science in a way that grants it legitimacy without having it take over everything. So that's the issue. And I think that the right answer is like a theology that takes scripture seriously and takes science seriously and tries to make sense of everything together. I think that's, I think that's the right approach. And I think it's going to be best worked out in dialogue between, uh, you know, scientists of goodwill and theologians and people in the church of goodwill too that um, we can kind of be there as blind men taking hold of different parts of the elephant and you know have a conversation with her and try and figure out together what the elephant looks like all at once. And so that, that requires us, you know, actually truthfully taking hold of something that we have perception of, right? And also requires some trust and fairness to one another as we actually try to correctly represent what we've taken hold of that the other person hasn't. And realize that they might have also taken something, hold of something legitimate that we haven't taken hold of yet. Yeah. That, that sort of conversation amongst the blind men is, I think, the only really way forward. But that's been hard. That hasn't really been happening in the church, right? There's very uh, few people who have figured out how to bring these things into dialogue with one another, uh, where there's constructive resistance, um, where, you know, where there's, you know, meaningful autonomy. I think that's, that's what a good conversation has, you know, and... You know that that that's possible. I mean, it's. I think my book and some of the conversations leading up to it were examples of that, right? Um, but I think I think that's just something that we have to really relearn how to do as a congregation. Um, I, I agree with I agree with everything you're saying. So I'm not I'm not trying to disagree. Like I guess maybe my mind works a little different, but I'm I'm always trying to kind of figure out um, how to navigate some of this stuff because you know. You could talk to somebody and say, okay, um, here's an area where science has come to a certain conclusion, but I personally think God is actually involved here. You know, I cannot prove it. Science cannot prove me wrong. And that's just the way it is. But then here's another area where science has reached certain conclusions. And I believe as Christians, we need to go along with that, even though, you know, you might think the Bible pulls you in a different direction. And how do we decide which is which situation? I mean, I I, I don't actually really know. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a bit of an incoherent question for me because I don't actually see any conflict with what I've seen in science and what I've seen in scripture. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can talk hypothetically about those sorts of things, but I don't actually see any conflict. I mean, it's, I just don't see conflict at all. I'm not even dealing with any friction at this point. I mean, I felt it in the past and usually that had to do because I really misunderstood the science and I really misunderstood the scripture. So, um, and, 
and I'm saying that that's true even if you take a very literal reading of Genesis. I mean, it, it's not like I'm saying I'm not taking scripture as talking about the physical world. That's not it. I mean, it's just, I just don't, see, you have to work very hard to make conflict here. And I'm just not doing that work. Um, so it's a little bit hard to figure that out. What I can say is that there's a lot of confusion about this in general. And I think the best thing to do is actually start you know, learning and talking to people and getting educated and getting understanding. What I tell students, and I think it really applies to us as scholars too, is uh, to really take Proverbs, uh, you know, Proverbs 3, 5 seriously, where it says, you know, I'm sorry, not 3, 5, I'm blanking on it. I think it's 4, 5. It says, you know, above all, I'll seek understanding and all you're getting, get understanding. I think the first part is like, get understanding. I mean, I think there's a lot of apparent conflicts that aren't, so just get understanding. And, and I think, we're in a moment now where I think if you do get understanding, I think I think I'm 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 a bit skeptical that at the other end that there's going to be a large amount of conflict. Yeah, I think that's probably a point where you and I are gonna maybe be on different sides of this um, for for some time, because I think people have certain commitments that bring them to different conclusions, and I tend to just respect their commitments in the sense that. Uh, you know, for example, if I talk to somebody who's coming from the Catholic perspective, their commitment is to, to their church. In other words, they, they feel like there's a certain epistemic primacy to the decisions that their church makes. Sure. And, um, and I respect that, too. But that doesn't tell me what the problem is. Though. What, what do you think the difference is? Well, the point is that whatever people's commitments are might lead them to certain conclusions. And then they're going to have issues whatever, you know, depending on each, each, each tradition, they might have different um, difficulties than you do because you're coming from a different angle at, at the, the Bible or at your theology. Well, maybe, but I mean, I'm coming from something that's actually fairly close to what people say is a starting point of young earth creationism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think, you know, Catholics for the most part don't have a challenge with science, but if yeah, they, they, do, they don't have a challenge with this. With this, you know, you can ask them like, "What exactly do you feel the conflict is?" The people who are tending to have the conflict are the people who are the literalists and all of them, right? Yeah. And those are the ones where you know I'm coming from that starting point. You know, uh, so I think that's where um, I mean that's where I question it. I mean, yeah, I think I think there's uh, you know there's going to be I, obviously we categorize our our different groups differently, but you know, I, I see certain people who are strict fundamentalists in the sense that they, they're very naive, like you said, they're very naive in their scriptural interpretation. But then there's, there's other Christians who are, are fairly advanced theologically, they might be doctors of theology, whatever, in the Protestant tradition, but because their commitments are to, to certain uh, early church traditions, you know, maybe Augustine, maybe certain, uh, Calvin, for example, they, they might be following Calvin's perspective on things. Uh, and then they might disagree with some of the conclusions scientists come to because of that. So they have those those pre-commitments, so it, it might cause more conflicts from them than, than what you're dealing with, because you, you don't come from that tradition. Well, maybe, but I mean, I think that they can articulate that. I mean, I work with a lot of Christians from different traditions, too. Yeah. I mean, uh, and usually what I've seen is that when you talk to people who are informed of those in traditions, they'll actually start with misunderstandings often, but they'll come to agree, actually, there isn't a fundamental conflict mm -hmm. here. 
But then what ends up being the blocker is not actually any fundamental conflict yeah. on ideas. It actually has to do with they're concerned about being public because they're going to face a populist uprising against mm. them. Mm. That, a populist fundamentalist uprising. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And so that's not a real conflict. That That's actually, that's not a real conflict. That's an invented conflict that has to do, and what I've even told them is like, you really should start saying that you're concerned about the fundamentalist incursion on your denomination. Yeah. And, you know, um, I mean, this is something that's actually very clearly seen, for example, amongst uh, Lutheran, uh, you know, Lutherans in Missouri Synod, LCMS. Like there's like clearly the Lutheran tradition, which is actually a very august tradition that's very thoughtful in all these things. They have a, a, a really um, careful seminary. It's done really good work. And then, and then, you know, in the 70s, they really had an invasion of fundamentalists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's people's livelihood. So you have to account for that. I mean, you know, if you have a, a large group of people supporting your seminary that are going to not. Yeah, but the thing about it is that fundamentalism is, fundamentalism is actually in conflict with Lutheranism. Yeah, yeah. And so then the question becomes of like, you know, if you can't actually see the conflict between this scientific theory out there and Lutheranism, but the fundamentalists are going to be upset, you know, how do you work through that? Now, I'm not trying to say it's easy to work no. through. But then, I mean, I think it helps to identify it once again as correctly, like the fundamentalist modernist split and how evangelicals are trying to kind of form an a correct synthesis. And, you know, most of us have actually rec can recognize fundamentalism and mo most of us don't actually realize that that's not actually the way forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, evangelicalism is a lot bigger than fundamentalism is a thing. Yeah. Anyway, I think I think what you did with your book uh, resolved a major conflict from people for people. So that's you're able to say certain things that we we might not have been able to say five yeah. years ago or ten years ago because you resolved the Adam and Eve issue. I, I agree with you with that. I think without some of the stuff that I kind of put forward in my book, I'm probably I'm probably being a bit too glib. <laughs> And frankly, I have said stuff like this in the past before my book came out and people didn't understand what I was saying. And yeah. we get into these conversations about Adam and Eve where it was really interesting. People were like, are you trying to say that everyone out there is wrong about what science says about Adam and Eve? Um, like all these people, all these people, I said, well, I mean, pretty much <laughs> are. I'm sorry. <laughs> but now past that stage, I think people, I think recognize a lot of them even changed their views. So you're right. I mean, I do think the conversation has changed. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe who knows? We're we're at a place where things can take a different turn out a lot a lot easier because we're we have the intellectual elements to to move forward, you know. So yeah, but I mean, for your project, I think you're on the right track. I mean, and I don't want it to come off as too negative. I do think that the real key issue though is moving away from an archetypal approach uh, to really doing something that can start defining issues better, so you can start understanding the diversity in the church better. Um, I think, uh, you know, really mapping out like what are different ways you can, and I think it'll actually simplify your paper. Instead of trying to make the case that X idea is linked with Y idea, you don't have to do that anymore. You know, you just try and, and kind of give the range of views on a particular thing. And um, and then you can kind of just see what the distribution of people is across that. And, yeah. let, and, and I think it just become, it'll become a far easier paper to write. Yeah, that'll be that'll be good if I can, but I'll have to do a lot of thinking through everything to figure out how to. So hopefully, that was helpful, and I didn't uh, hey, I didn't uh, ruin your party too much. I appreciate the time. I mean, I, uh, I like I said, I really enjoyed your your work, so I, I'm glad that you were willing to take the time and and talk to me.
And um, I'll definitely think about all the stuff we discussed. I don't know where I'll end up on the whole thing once I give it the thought, but uh, um, definitely it's been helpful and I'm sure others will enjoy the conversation as well. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having yeah, me. Thanks. Thanks a lot for coming, Josh. And uh, we'll, we'll be in touch online. I'm sure we'll run into each other at some point. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye.